couple of quick notes. Uh, as most of you saw last week, our tech team uh, created a separate video of my little address to Governor Newsom. And I guess thanks to you, it's been viewed on YouTube like 1,100 times or something. So uh, I don't know if he's seen it. He's the only one I was talking to. But uh, um, we do pray for our governor. We pray for his wisdom and more importantly for his salvation. And I did want to give you one more note about singing, just a historical note. Uh, John Huss, or Jan Hus, if you're Hus, if you're saying it in Czech, the Czech Catholic priest uh, turned theologian and reformer, defender of the biblical gospel. He preached against the doctrines of Catholicism. And as a young man, he supported himself as a professional singer. He would go from church to church, and he would literally sing for his supper. He did that, and he preached the gospel. But eventually, the Catholic authorities had enough of John's preaching the biblical gospel, certainly had enough of his singing. He was burned at the stake in 1415 for heresy against the Catholic Church, namely proclaiming that salvation was by the grace of God alone. And as the flames were reaching him, you can guess what he did. He sang at the top of his lungs. He sang the Psalms until he succumbed to the flames. May we be that faithful. Well, I'm very excited to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1, we're going to look at verses 3 and 4, and we'll read that together here in a moment. The epistles of Paul give us a wonderful opportunity to really go very minute in detail, to go deep into every word of a text. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is the apostolic representative of the church of Ephesus, And he continues now, really beginning to tell Timothy the reason for this letter and the reason for Timothy's ministry. 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God That is, by faith. And we'll just stop right there for this morning. What does it mean to honor Christ? What does that mean? Well, we could spend a long time on that, but just a couple of ideas. It starts, of course, with a heart attitude. What's in your heart? A deep yearning to filter everything you do, everything you say, everything you even think through the sieve of wanting to be pleasing to the Lord. And this is despite what you want, it's despite what your desires are, and it's despite what your passions are, what they're leading you, what they're telling you. You don't honor Christ by means of subjective feeling, saying, I feel as though I'm honoring Christ right now. If you feel as though you're honoring Christ, I'll bet a nickel you're not. Because honoring Christ, by its very nature, is doing that which you don't necessarily want to do. Just as an example, in the context of relationships with God's people, honoring Christ means doing all you can to live in peace with your brothers and sisters. It means thinking very clearly about Philippians 2 to consider others as more important than yourselves. It means remembering that the reputation of Christ is at stake in how you deal with others. It means striving to imitate God in grace and in mercy and in kindness and in patience, and in forgiveness. It means guarding against words and actions that are motivated primarily by defending yourself and not considering others. 
It means seeing relationships as an opportunity for you to grow, for you to mature. And yes, it means seeing relationships as an opportunity for you to help others grow and mature. That's what honoring Christ is, according to Scripture, in relationships. But more broadly, just across the board, in the context of the church, it means treating the church as the bride of Christ. And this means treating her with love and passion and honor and duty. And one of those duties, we would say maybe the most important duty, concerns how the church honors Christ by how it values the truth. How does the church value truth? Because how the church treats the truth, the word of Christ, as Romans 10, 17 says, as Colossians 3, 16 says, how the church treats the truth determines whether the church is producing Christ-honoring people or not. That's the crux. That is the fulcrum upon which everything else depends. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're examining the subject of what we're calling the beautiful bride of Christ, and that is... How is the bride of Christ preparing herself for the marriage supper of the Lamb? How are we becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ to prepare for that grand meeting with our heavenly bridegroom? Now, so far, we've been looking at some elements of that preparation. We've looked at New Testament preaching, and we've looked at effective disciples. Today, what I'd like to look at, an element of that preparation of becoming the beautiful bride of Christ, we want to look at becoming Christ-honoring people. Christ-honoring people. I found that the average church attender, probably due to ineffective discipleship, ineffective preaching and teaching, they, they really haven't been exposed to the concept of honoring Christ in terms of honoring the truth, honoring the word of Christ. You can ask any Christian in American evangelicalism, do you want to honor Christ? Oh, yeah, sure, that's why I got this tattoo on my back that says Jesus on it. And, and so we have all these ideas about honoring Christ. That's not what he's asked for. Well, these, I know 20 of you have tattoos with Jesus on it, so sorry about that. But that's not what he asks for. What he says is to honor his truth, honor his word, honor the word of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean just saying, yeah, I believe the Bible. I, I like the Bible. I mean, mine, it's beautiful on my shelf. It's a nice color. It goes with the flowers. No, it means not just saying you honor the Bible. It means taking him at his word. It's an incredibly serious mockery that evangelicalism has practically taken over a view of the Bible that is sentimental, a sentimental view of Scripture, that the Bible is filled with stories and promises which are meant to give me a feeling, meant to motivate me to achievement, motivate me to happiness, to give me that extra oomph that I need for Monday morning. But that part of Scripture forces you to cherry-pick the parts that you like the best, right? Right? The, the sentimental view of Scripture loves Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. And that's true and that gives you a good feeling. But the sentimental view of Scripture doesn't exactly know what to do with the prophet Samuel standing before a foreign king named Agag, and as 1 Samuel fifteen thirty three says, and Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. This brings a tear to your eye, doesn't it? No, what, is, what do you do with that? If you hold to a sentimental view of Scripture, you're lost. Honoring Christ is only possible by honoring His truth as it is presented, not as we wish it was presented. And so 1 Timothy is instruction here to church leaders and to the church about what should be happening in the church in regards to the truth, in regards to the Bible. 
This is Paul's purpose in writing to Timothy. That Timothy is to take charge of what's happening with truth in the church at Ephesus. So let's identify what should be happening in the church in regards to truth. And I'm just going to give you some simple uh, imperatives here. The first thing that should be happening in the truth, in the church in regards to truth, very simply, guard the truth. We have to start there. Guard the truth. We put a fence around it. Now, 1 Timothy 1 has a very unusual feature for Paul's writings. This is only one of three of his letters in which he doesn't give an expression of thanks. Almost all of his letters begin with a greeting and then something like, I thank my God for all of you. But he doesn't do that here. What's happening in the church at Ephesus left Paul really no basis to gush on with gratitude at all. He gets right down to business with Timothy. There's serious things happening. And because Paul's charge to Timothy is serious and somber, he's pushing Timothy to pick a fight. He's pushing Timothy to initiate a conflict in the church. And I can imagine if Timothy had had, and he didn't, but if he had had a meeting with a pastoral search committee for the church of Ephesus and they asked him, what's the first thing you'd like to do in our church? Well, I'm going to pick a fight. Actually, that's what I'm going to do. I don't think that would have gone over very well. That's why Paul sent him and told the church at Ephesus, Timothy's here, deal with it. Now, this letter is written to Timothy, Paul's representative, but it was meant for the whole church. We said last time that the last sentence of 1 Timothy is a blessing. Grace be with you, plural, all of you, Texan, you all. It's everybody. Not, Timothy, tell the church I said grace be with you, but it's directly to them. Now, this is very, very important. Because what this does, verse 3 here, verifies Paul's charge to Timothy. Paul is giving Timothy the backing of a written apostolic request confirming to the church that Paul did in fact make this request. And this is being read to the church. I urged you, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. What would have happened in a room filled with certain persons? They would have been looking at each other. Was it you? Is it you? No, I think it's you. I think it's him. It would have the effect of giving Timothy more courage to carry out a difficult and a challenging task. And Paul writes, as I urged you, it means implored, requested, not suggested. This isn't a suggestion. It's a strong appeal. It carries the weight of apostolic authority. It's a mandate. It's a directive. It's a command. It's an imperative. Now, Paul had requested that Timothy remain at Ephesus. Let's talk about Ephesus just for a minute. What was Timothy up against? By the time the church at Ephesus was started, the city of Ephesus had already been around for 1,200 years. And so you have in this very large city, the religious center of the Roman province of Asia, Asia Minor. It was the provincial capital as well. Very, very large city. A couple of hundred thousand people there. And in Ephesus, you have one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And that is the temple of Artemis or Diana. And not only was it a huge religious influence, which included, by the way, magic and and the occult, but it was also a huge tourist attraction. And so what, what do tourists bring that people, locals like? They bring money. And so you can read in uh, Acts chapter 19 about the, the great conflict that happens in Ephesus because of the gospel. But what Timothy is up against is over a thousand years of already established culture, pagan culture. And so the new church desperately needs the pure, unadulterated word of God 
so that they might live godly in the midst of a godless culture. And so Paul's order to Timothy that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. When the pastor starts in a new church, there's often something that we call a honeymoon period. It's where the pastor loves everyone and everyone loves the pastor. That doesn't stay the same. And so it's always a good thing to get your best work done up front while everybody still likes you. That's what I always say. This is a very sweet time in most cases. I wonder what Timothy's experience in Ephesus was like. Uh, Welcome, Timothy. We're glad you're here. Good. I'm glad to say you said that because you're teaching a false doctrine and you need to stop. Welcome to our church. And I wonder if Timothy ever laid awake in bed at night going, thanks, Paul. I just really appreciate this conflict you threw me into. But that's what he did. Because who are these certain persons? Well, there's two categories of them. They're both serious, and one is devastating. These people that Timothy is to confront. The first category, those from the outside. Those from outside the church. A few years earlier, Paul had warned the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So new members of the church would come. They would have great sway, great influence. In fact, the term fierce wolves pretty strongly suggests Paul is saying they're not true believers. They're unregenerate people who are fake and they are influencing the church. This is exactly what happened in the churches of Galatia. Galatians 2.4, Paul exposes who he calls false brothers secretly brought in to undermine the gospel. And notice, by the way, the false brothers are brought in meaning that there's a satanic influence. They're tools of Satan to disrupt the true gospel, disrupt the true church. It's also what happened in Corinth. Paul rebuked Corinth for their easy acceptance of divergent gospel variations. He said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And so Satan bringing in from the outside those who would disrupt the church. It happened in Ephesus, happened in the churches of Galatia, happened in Corinth. This is among the reasons, by the way, that we have such a rigorous membership process because we want to guard the truth. But there's a second category of of certain persons, much more serious, much more devastating. We would call these those from the inside. Those from the inside. Paul told the elders... Of Ephesus, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Acts 20, verse 30, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. A room full of elders, and he says, some of you will be the false teachers. You will lead people astray. Some of the very elders of the church gatherings in Ephesus were the culprits that Timothy must confront. As a matter of fact, this category of elders in the church who are leading people astray, this is a thread all throughout 1 Timothy. For example, in chapter 3, Paul gives Timothy the qualifications of an elder. And what's the implicit directive here? What's what's he telling Timothy? Requalify all the elders. They must be requalified. They must meet these qualifications. At the end of chapter 1, Paul openly names two men who were almost certainly elders in Ephesus, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom he said have made shipwreck of their faith. 
In fact, you can read along with me the last two verses of chapter 1, verse 19. Holding faith in the good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, among whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And what's the general assumption here? The general assumption is that Alexander and Hymenaeus have made shipwreck of their faith, their own faith, as the English translation says, meaning they've rejected the gospel. But it's deeper than this. First of all, Paul says they're blasphemers. It means they are speaking. They are spreading a false gospel. They are teaching what is wrong. But second, the Greek text doesn't say their faith. It has a definite article. They're shipwrecking the faith. What is this picture? You have two leaders in the church, metaphorically, on a ship that is going toward the rocks and they're getting many, many people on this ship that is going away from the gospel, away from Christ, away from sound theology. And they're shipwrecking not only their own faith, but the faith. They're misleading many. And you know this, by the way, they are not disciplined by the church. They're simply thrown out by Paul. There was no time to waste. And as an apostle and a fellow elder, he threw out the unfaithful elders. He threw them out. In fact, this thread of elders leading the church astray comes to a climactic moment in 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, when Paul says that the unrepentant, disobedient elder is to not only be dismissed, but as for those who persist in sin, in other words, who refuse to stop teaching what is false, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. The rest of whom? The rest of the elders. You don't want elders who are prideful. You want elders who are afraid, afraid of God. And in the context of all of 1 Timothy, this is most likely speaking specifically about the heinous act of teaching a contrary gospel. What's the motivation of these men, these false teachers? Well, they yearn for power. They yearn for influence. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 7. They desire, they're desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They're either teaching or wanting to supplant those who are teaching. Why? It's out of jealousy. It's out of desire for power. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they don't know. They certainly don't have the training that Timothy had, don't have the training that Paul had. And yet they want influence. They want sway. They want to gain a following. And so they crave for the pulpit. They crave for the Sunday school class. They crave for the Bible study so that they might have influence. I actually got to hear him tell this story in person once, and so I have a firsthand account of this. But our dear friend and example in the ministry, John MacArthur, walked into a Tuesday morning staff meeting in 1979, 10 years after starting his ministry at Grace Community Church, and he walked into what he later called Black Tuesday. When he came into the staff meeting, he was there to thank the staff, other pastors, for their help and their friendship. And to his shock, one of the staff members speaking for the rest of them said, if you think we're your friends, you've got another thing coming. And the basic issue was that they wanted in on the pulpit ministry. They wanted to begin a rotating pulpit ministry where a bunch of them would rotate through the pulpit. They were jealous. They wanted in on the dynamic ministry built on the sound preaching of Dr. MacArthur, which would make, by the way, guarding the truth impossible. You don't guard the truth by having a rotating door of speakers. 
And so those men rebelled. They also received pink slips as well. The weight of accountability for what is taught in the local church is monumental. It is huge. It brings preachers to their knees. It brings them to tears because this is everything. Because as a church is taught, so it will become. Renewing of the mind must happen with truth and the truth has to be guarded. What is it we're guarding? We're guarding the truth of God, regarding the truth of Christ, regarding the truth of salvation, regarding the truth of the attributes of God, regarding the truth of the Trinity, regarding the truth of the, the gospel, that salvation is accomplished through the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross as an atonement for your sins, not by works, lest any man must boast. That must be guarded at all costs. We must guard the truth. And so we in the church are to put everything in place possible to guard the truth. That's why we have a doctrinal statement. That's why we have a membership process. That's why that you don't get to fill out a one-page application to stand where I'm standing. We guard the truth. What else should be happening in the church in regards to truth? Well, not just guarding the truth. That's the starting point. But elevate the truth. We're to elevate the truth. These certain persons were not to teach any different doctrine. Different doctrine. It's a word that means other. Something that's not the same. It's a literal translation of a, of a long Greek compound word that actually Paul's the only one that used it. It means different or other teaching, but it's exactly where we get the term that we now use, false doctrine. That's a term that was coined from this verse. And it means specifically not to teach any of a different kind, not of a similar kind, but any of a different kind, which rendered it false. In other words, Paul isn't talking about small, innocent differences in theological nuances. He's talking about perversions of the true gospel. And so Timothy's purpose here is command those teaching not to teach these things anymore. Now, by the way, you might say, well, why didn't Timothy just come and take over the pulpit? Well, very clearly, the implication here is that the church of Ephesus was not just meeting in one location. This is a large city and a large province. These are churches meeting primarily in homes all over the place. And so what Timothy is trying to do, he's not just teaching instead of the elders. He's trying to regain and reestablish apostolic authority to tell those who are teaching in these home churches to stop leading people astray and to get back to the gospel. And that's why his role really surpassed that of simply a local pastor. He's an apostolic representative to the numerous church gatherings in and around Ephesus. So now we've been talking in generalities. Timothy's warning against teaching false doctrine. What is it that he is warning against? Some have called it the Ephesian heresy. And before you write that down and get excited about it, uh, it's probably not well defined enough to be able to pinpoint it to one specific uh, single belief or set of beliefs which was directly opposing the gospel. And actually... There is a, what we might call a glorious ambiguity to what Paul is saying. This is very helpful because what is the ambiguity? The fact that this is vague, what does it do for us? Well, I guess Paul is saying be on guard against anything that contradicts the true gospel. Bingo. You got it. But we do know some of the characteristics of what was being taught. Some of the content problems being promulgated by these false teachers. And I'd like to enlighten you a little bit about what was happening in some of these home churches i'm going to give you seven characteristics of what was being taught you can't really put it together into a single 
theological problem. It's just these are the things that were being taught. First of all, we know it's something opposed to the gospel. Something opposed to the gospel. It's at the basic, at the basic level. It means something besides grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone was being put forward. And no doubt it was subtle. It was deceptive. It was like the proverbial drop of orange juice in a glass of milk that one drop of falsehood ruined all the truth. Something opposed to the gospel. We also know it was something exclusive. Something exclusive. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. Paul says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And the Greek text puts it in quotes, which is appropriate because it's not true knowledge. Meaning that these teachers were claiming either some sort of divine authority or divine revelation or prophecy, or it could be an early form of Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis from knowledge. Gnosticism emphasized higher planes of knowledge, which were a, 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 a measure of your spirituality. And, and it included kind of a, a cocktail of Christian theology and Platonism and Greco-Roman philosophy all put together. And so these teachers were likely claiming to know God in a way that others did not and could not. And they created this aura of super spirituality that if you really want to be spiritual, you need to listen to me to create a following. By the way, this is not unlike many leaders in the charismatic church. And I use the word church in quotes, which claim to hear directly from God and then pass this knowledge supposedly onto their people. That is a billion dollar business, by the way, to say I have knowledge you can't possibly have. And for a small price, I'll pass it on to you. So it's opposed to the gospel. It's something exclusive. We also know it's something irreverent. Something irreverent. Chapter 6, verse 20 refers to irreverent babble. Chapter 4, verse 7 tells Timothy to have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. It's a word that means pointless, worthless, of a low nature. It's not high and holy. I read an article a couple of weeks ago that takes the Lord's table and turned it into a way for you to feel better about yourself. That when you take the bread and when you take the cup, that should make you feel better about yourself. That's irreverent. The body and blood of Christ is meant to make you feel worse about yourself and to be reminded of the high and holy thing which we call salvation. Not irreverent, not man-centered, not me-centered. We also know that it was something that turns away from Scripture. Something that turns away from Scripture and toward another standard. 2 Timothy 4 verse 4 warns of teachers in the church who will, quote, turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. What myths? I'll deal with that in just a moment. But the main problem here is that they're using anything other than Scripture as their standard. And you might say, well, that would never happen. All Christians in America love the Bible. Are there potential other standards competing with the Bible? Yeah. How about the CDC? How about the government? who would issue mandates that are against Scripture. So there are authorities now combining to, together to be in competition with the Bible. We also know this is something that was anti-Gentile. 
It was anti-Gentile. It may be that Jewish men were preaching that one must become more Jewish before becoming a Christian. Those are called Judaizers, that you must come under the law of Moses before you can come under the law of Christ. 1 Timothy 2, Paul devotes a long section to devoting the, the gospel, defending the gospel rather, as being in Christ alone for all who would believe, not just the Jew. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, he basically says, pray for your Gentile government leaders. That was unheard of for a Jew. Verses 3 and 4, he says, this pleases God who desires all nations to be saved. Saved. Verses 5 and 6, there is one mediator, Jesus Christ, who's the ransom for sin for all who would believe. And then the capper, the icing on the cake, the final blow, chapter 2, verse 7, Paul proclaims that he had been appointed as a preacher, as an apostle, and as a teacher to the Gentiles. This is an argument against an anti-Gentile sentiment. There's another quality or characteristic of the false teaching. It was something focused on knowledge for its own sake. It was something focused on knowledge for its own sake. That the definition of spirituality was simply the gaining of knowledge. The more you know, the more spiritual you are. And yes, of course, Paul affirms in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 that the church is the pillar and buttress of what? Of the truth. But he gives his purpose in writing Timothy 1 Timothy 3.14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to know stuff. No, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Knowledge of the word of God is meant to be translated into a new mind, which translates into new thoughts, which translates into new words, which translates into new actions. One more characteristic, we know that this was something that taught that Christ's kingdom was now, not future. Something that taught that Christ's kingdom was now, not future. And today, we would kind of call that amillennial. 2 Timothy 2.18 speaks of some leaders in the Ephesian church who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Now, what did they mean by saying that the resurrection has already happened? Not totally clear, but two leaders in particular, Hymenaeus and Philetus, were teaching some version of Christ's kingdom already being present, with apparently some believing that they were already the resurrected versions of themselves. Now, I know an easy way to disprove that. Just wait 50 years, and you know that's not the case. But why would this be such a huge problem? Well, this would cause a rift in the church because now there are the haves and the have-nots. There's varsity and junior varsity. Of course it's going to be upsetting to your faith if you think you're not among the resurrected. It's a form of spiritual elitism. And by the way, it shows how incredibly important it is to teach and to preach proper eschatology in the church. Because if you don't, you go off into these weird rabbit trails. So to put all that together, They had teachers in the church, leaders, elders, completely off base in their soteriology, their teaching on salvation, their theology proper, their understanding of God, their bibliology, understanding of the authority of Scripture, their ecclesiology, understanding of the nature of the church, and their eschatology, their understanding of the future plans of Christ. Could have saved a lot of time and just said, theologically, they were messed up. They were a mess. 
Paul's determination to have Timothy write this ship theologically, by the way, is an indictment against a shallow or a sentimental view of Scripture and of theology. We don't have a pamphlet. We have a Bible. And it gives us a practical guideline as to what should be most important to the church. It is the truth. It is to be taught. It is to be preached. It is to be read. It is to be inculcated. It is to be emphasized. This is why preaching is the hallmark and the centerpiece of the church. It's an interactive activity where I'm talking and you're thinking and taking it in. It is interactive. This is why the Lord's table is an integral part, a feature of worship, because it reenacts the basics of the gospel. You can't go off track very easily by remembering the body and the blood of Christ. It's all about Christ. And this is, of course, why singing is vital and why it's a required part of worship. It's using the God-given musical instrument of your voice to rehearse the truths of Scripture in song and to embed them in your hearts for a lifetime. Darren likes to tease me and say, you know, long after people have forgotten what you've preached, they'll remember what we sang. And it's true. You will remember some of the hymns that we sang this morning. I don't know if you could remember any of the hymns that we only recited last week. Why do you not remember them? Because they weren't embedded with music. The church is to elevate the truth. It's all about the truth. We must guard the truth. We must elevate the truth. What else should be happening in the church? We must prioritize the truth. Prioritize the truth. How easy it is to subtly shift into forms of so-called spiritual authority which are subpar, sub-spiritual, sub-biblical. Verse 4, these leaders who were leading people astray were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Devoting themselves. It doesn't just mean mild interest. It means something with which you're preoccupied, with which you're obsessed. And in fact, it has overtones of living a lifestyle around these myths and genealogies. Now, this phrase, myths and endless genealogies, is pretty difficult to interpret specifically because it's, it's vague. But it does have a distinctly Jewish and Old Testament flavor to it. The most likely options concerning the myths would be made-up stories and legends about Old Testament characters, traditions not found in the text of Scripture itself, and yet these stories would now gain so much traction that they would come on par with Scripture itself. They would be seen as equal. It's like propaganda. The more times you say something, and to more than one generation, after a while it simply becomes accepted as truth. Now, where does this come from? Well, one example we know of is is a book called the Jewish Book of Jubilees. And this was written in the second century B.C. And it's just a book of legends, legends and myths about Old Testament characters. And many of these came to be believed on the level with what inspired Scripture says. And I'll give you a very simple example. Almost all of you, if you took an American history class or you just read a little or you heard the myths and the legends, you've been taught that as a six-year-old boy, George Washington chopped down a cherry tree and his father came and said, did you chop down that tree? And what did George Washington say? I cannot tell a what? Lie. It brings a tear to our eye. He's the father of our country. Well, in 1806, that was a story completely made up by Mason Locke Weems in the fifth edition of his book, The Life of George Washington. And he says in many interviews, I made that up so that people would love Washington. And yet it's become a part of our thinking, hasn't it? 
That's what myths do. That's why you don't make stuff up about the Bible. You simply look at Scripture. What about the genealogies? The most likely option concerning the genealogies is that by meticulously trying to reconstruct your own genealogy and maybe that of others, it established for a Jew his link to a particular tribe or a particular clan or a particular family, which made this, by the way, a very Jewish-centered belief that a Gentile could have no part of. And in particular, your genealogy could establish you as part of the priesthood and thereby give you a false claim to some sort of greater spirituality, right? It would go something like this. My uncle Simon's great-grandfather told a story once that his uncle Josiah mentioned in passing that their ancestor is Uziel, who, of course, is the younger brother of Amram, who is the father of Moses himself. So Moses is pretty much my cousin. I I feel very close to him. That's what it was. It was establishing spiritual authority through your family tree. Now, the great thing about the vague nature of myths and genealogies, again, is that it warns us of being aware of anything that could replace the truth of Scripture as a priority, or worse, attempts to misuse the Scripture to further some sort of faulty theological system. In fact, Paul insults this tendency, and it is the tendency of all of us. He'll tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. You know what he says by silly? It's a Greek word that means having the characteristics of an old woman. Now, I didn't make that up. That's Paul. What does he mean by that? Well, it's where we get our phrase, old wives' tales. Myths that aren't true. Today, we might call this Christian mythology. Sort of extra-biblical myths and legends that become very attractive because they tantalize, they excite, and they're, they're very exciting to hear. I want to give you two examples of Christian mythology just so you understand what we're dealing with. They're really nothing more than fads and then they take on the aura of truth. This is two of probably hundreds we could do. But these are two of my favorites. Uh, The first myth we would call America in Bible prophecy. We love that one. This is getting big right now. It's all over the internet. America in Bible prophecy. Uh, One theory is that two sons of Joseph... The two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, very clearly represent the British Commonwealth in the United States. But there's nothing in the Scripture that even comes close to that. And just because a guy sitting behind a desk with a picture behind him and a camera wearing a tie says it, doesn't mean, wait a minute, I'm wearing a tie in front of a camera, but I'm saying it from the Word of God. It doesn't mean that America is in the Bible. The Lord has used the United States on the world stage and has been a hallmark of freedom of worship until recently. But the Bible is silent on America. It's funny to me that no one asks, how does Iceland fit into the Bible? No one cares. But if I preached a long series on America in the Bible, it would be tantalizing. You would bring your your little flags and wave them. But would that sustain you in a time of trial? Would that help you know your God better? Would that help you understand your salvation better? Would that help you commune with Christ? No, it would actually be worthless because it's just a myth and a speculation. How about this one? Biblical numerology. Biblical numerology. Numbers in the Bible 
certainly have significance. They have symbolic meanings. Uh, the number seven, the number 40 are among the most repeated numbers of Scripture. Seven is often associated with perfection or completion. Seven days, seven pairs of clean animals on Noah's Ark. Many other examples. Forty is often associated with probation or trial. Forty years of wandering for Israel. Moses on Mount Sinai for 40 days. Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and so forth. But many take this too far. And I've heard sermons preached on this by looking for secret meanings and hidden codes and messages. And people get obsessed with this. Books are written on it. Seminars, conferences on biblical numerology. You know what actually happens as a result? What actually happens is that the true message of Scripture now is obscured. And now it's set aside. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've read First Timothy. But did you know that every 15th Greek letter divided by four and added to the year that you were born plus your address, it spells Jesus? Like, well, actually it just says Jesus right here in the text. It's a myth. What does that do for your faith? Nothing except lead you away from the word of God. Completely away. So what is the church to do instead? Instead, explain what is true. Explain what is verifiable in the sole source of God's truth because if you don't, what's going to happen? Paul says that when you go off track, it's going to, verse 4, it promotes speculation. Promotes speculation. Bible teaching is not supposed to bring up more questions. It's supposed to reduce the number of questions you have. It's supposed to give you answers. I heard a sermon once from a a very liberal preacher who said absolutely nothing, and the end of his sermon was, well, I hope that's giving you food for thought. Uh, Yeah, it makes me wonder, why did I waste my time listening to you? Because you didn't give me any answers. And in fact, speculation has led to what some have called speculative theology, where you sit in a theological conference or a seminar for hours and hours where somebody speculates and theorizes and they sound so, so smart and they have degrees from Oxford and they have PhDs in New Testament and they speculate for three or four hours and you walk out going, wow, I didn't understand a word of that. He must be so much smarter than I am. I've got to get more of that. You know what that's called? That's called Gnosticism. You're not supposed to leave with questions. You're supposed to leave with answers. So the church is to be about prioritizing the truth because it's the truth that gives you comfort when life hurts. It's the truth that gives you comfort when you have no answers that Scripture hasn't addressed yet. The Scripture doesn't tell you why you have cancer. The Scripture doesn't tell you why your child is rebelling. Scripture doesn't tell you those things, but Scripture does tell you about the God who will walk you through those things. Scripture alone, our sole authority, teaching what is revealed, not making up something that supposedly is concealed. So Christ-honoring people in the church must guard the truth, elevate the truth, prioritize the truth, and you know this is where we're going. They must live the truth. They must live the truth. This is not where I'm going. This is where the text goes. Verse 4, Paul says that the devotion to myths and endless genealogies promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And by the way, Paul calls these false teachings endless. It's the idea of this never-ending, exhausting teaching that creates only more confusion instead of feeding the soul with a greater knowledge of God and a greater knowledge of our response, our actions. But all of this is leading to this very important phrase which promotes speculations 
rather than the stewardship from God. Stewardship. It's a Greek word that you probably can recognize. Oikonomia. It's the management of a household, specifically another's household. We get our English word economy or economic. It's where we get the well-known phrase, the economy of God. The oikonomia, the stewardship, the management of God's household. What is the stewardship? Well, in the context of 1 Timothy, first of all, it is the gospel itself. We are stewards. We are managers of the gospel and we are to care for it. But broader than that, it's also the attendant implications of the gospel. Christ-likeness, obedience, diligence. In the economy, the stewardship of God, the right view of the gospel, and the proper emphasis on learning the word of God, what should that lead to? It should lead to a proper management of the household of God. 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is depicted as God's household. And so this is very important. Listen carefully. That means that all the leaders in the church and all the believers in the church are given tasks of stewardship, not ownership. You do not own the church. You do not own yourself. And by extension, since every one of you who knows Christ is owned by God, you've been bought, you've been paid for by the blood of Christ, called 125 times in the New Testament, slaves of Christ. And since we make up the household of God, then our actions are to be a stewardship, not an ownership. You don't own your words. You don't own your actions. You don't even own your thoughts. They're not yours to do with as you please. We ask the question, not what's best for the steward, but we ask what's best for the master. And ultimately, the stewardship from God is not merely the gospel itself, but how the gospel is lived out. And how is it lived out? The stewardship from God that is by faith. Grammatically, we could say in the stewardship or in the sphere, rather, of faith, in the circle of faith. What does that mean? Then not only do you come to Christ by faith, but you're to live in Christ by faith. I'm preaching a whole message on that tonight. What does it mean? Faith is more than just believing that God's going to help you in your life. It's more than that. It means managing God's household, your Christian life, you, in a way which trusts that God's commands for you are right and pure and holy, regardless of what your culture is doing. Now, in the context of Paul warning about these fruitless discussions, these speculations, false teaching, which is off of the true gospel, Generally speaking, any teaching, any preaching, any theological discussion which doesn't lead ultimately to the pursuit of the stewardship of God, which is by faith, to the management of God's household, which is you, 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 and you, to the obedience of Christ in the very fabric of your life, any teaching that doesn't lead toward that becomes worthless. It's pointless. I gave you the beginning of 1 Timothy 4, 7 a couple of times, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but it finishes, rather, instead, train yourself for godliness. Oh, did you catch that? You can pursue silliness or you can be godly. You cannot do both. You must pursue the truth to pursue godliness. More specifically, though, I want to take a moment on this. 
The false teaching of some of the elders of the church was having a massively negative impact on one particular group in the church, and that is the women. It's having a horrible impact on the women. It was leading them away from pursuing godliness, leading them away from obedience. 2 Timothy 3, 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. When it says weak women, it's not an insult. It means those who haven't yet been taught enough to know when they hear falsehood. Some of the church leaders now had won a following among the women of the church and they were preaching a culturally friendly message that you attain to higher spirituality by interacting and engaging with the world. That you do what makes you feel right. And how do we know this? What was it that was upsetting and negatively impacting these women? Women were having doubts thrown at him at them by means of teachers who were saying, let me tell you, yes, the Bible may say this about what a woman is, but let me tell you a real truth. Let me tell you what God has told me, and we see it in our culture. And now... The very fabric of what a woman's life is supposed to be is called into question. They don't know what to do. This is why we have several important correctives to Christian women in 1 Timothy and in Titus as well. Why is Paul pushing so hard to keep the church on message regarding obedience to the gospel and not to the culture? Well, from the time of Caesar Augustus and and now it's raging in full force during Paul's day, A movement among women, especially wealthy women, the elite celebrities of their time, was massively influencing the culture. What were these women trying to influence their culture to do? And it was working. It was a a tidal wave. It was a tsunami that was overwhelming womanhood. Here are some of the things they were emphasizing. Get rid of any clothing or adornments which represented respectability and faithfulness to one husband. A Roman woman had a particular garment that she could wear that says, I am faithful to one husband. And this women's movement said, get rid of that. They also said to throw off sexual modesty in attire. Show as much of your body as you want. Demonstrate your womanhood. They also emphasized throwing off the bonds of family. And instead, they said, explore your own sexuality. And in Rome... In, in, in the Roman Empire, these wealthy women would create these dinner parties that were specifically for the purpose of exchanging sexual partners. And of course, they said, throw off the bonds of motherhood. Women were encouraged to not only avoid having children, but kill the ones you do have. In some parts of the Roman Empire, as long as a child was under three, you could kill that child. And yes, abortion existed. It was rampant in the Roman Empire in Paul's day. It did exist. They used a chemically induced abortion with herbs and medicines. In fact, one ancient Roman text gives a poem about the tragedy of a failed abortion because the baby lived. It says, ah, too vigorous. The infant resisted the arts brought against it and was safe from the hidden enemy. And in that book, it's called a lament that the baby lived. Why is it a lament? Because mom can't pursue her dreams. Children were seen as a ball and chain which prevented real pleasure in life. Women were encouraged to be sexually promiscuous, to disrespect and dishonor their husbands. Does this sound familiar? This was a movement called the New Roman Woman. In other words, the family was under attack and now the church had fallen for it and 
elders in the church were teaching women to go along with this. And they were saying, I have higher wisdom. I know better. Not only was Roman feminism hurting and misleading women, it was emboldening them to push back against the godly leadership structure mandated by God in the church, which is what? It is male leadership. And so what do you have? We'll see every one of those issues addressed in 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. Every single one. Paul is pushing back saying, no, this is what Christian women do. You cannot live according to your culture. You must live the truth. And so Christ-honoring people in the church must guard the truth, elevate the truth, prioritize the truth, live the truth. And I love the fact that at the end of 1 Timothy, in chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. It kind of reiterates everything I just said. So I could have saved a lot of time and just read these four verses to you, but here's Paul's summary. 1 Timothy 6, middle of verse 2, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and, listen to this, deprived of the truth. So what's the solution? Guard the truth, elevate the truth, prioritize the truth, and live the truth. That's the solution. Well, I want to close with a very simple question. I suspect I am primarily preaching to the choir, but we need the truth. We need to be reminded continually. But I never assume that everybody believes. My simple question is, do you have a longing and a passion and a desire for the truth of Scripture? Is it there? Do you pursue the truth? And I don't mean just as a discipline, as something that you ought to do. I mean as an insatiable hunger, an insatiable thirst, not for speculative theology, not for the latest fad, not for harebrained rabbit trails, but for the solid truths of Scripture. If I could say it this way, don't nibble on the truth. Take vast bites of the truth. Don't be satisfied with milk. Eat the meat and don't say, I'll do it tomorrow. Do it today. Do it today. And by having this insatiable hunger for the truth in this way, as part of the beautiful and the being beautified bride of Christ, preparing for heaven, you will be a Christ-honoring believer because you honor the truth. Amen? Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, oh, we thank you for this rich, rich, thick book which is quite literally endless in its ability to thrill us with the truths of God, of Christ, of the Spirit of God, of heaven, of our salvation. We could read this book for 10,000 years and never plumb the depths of the knowledge of God. And this knowledge ought to lead us to humility lead us to know you better and therefore obey you more. I would pray for a man or a woman, Lord, who believes they know much of the truth and yet have become complacent about the truth. I pray you would help them to repent and to revitalize that hunger once again. And I pray for a man or a woman who does not know Jesus Christ, who has not looked upon the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I pray, Lord, that they would look on Christ. They would ask for forgiveness. 
and that they would receive the free and full payment of sin offered by Christ himself. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.